It's so true in a number of areas of life that a little becomes a lot. For instance, when my wife was cooking for guests early in our marriage, she was cooking something to put over rice. And when I went into the kitchen, there were pans and pans overflowing with rice. And to save herself embarrassment, she stuffed it all in the oven so nobody would notice. When it comes to rice, a little is a lot. It's also true in the area of finance. If you're in your 20s and you put $14 a day away, by the time you're 67, you'll have about a million dollars to live on. It's true in the area of health. If you can walk about 20 minutes a day, that will reduce your risk of heart disease and diabetes and other health issues by about 20%. Because in the area of rice or health or money, a little is a lot. It's also true in matters pertaining to the kingdom of God that Jesus takes what seems to be insignificant and small and he, he does something grand with it. He takes something just like you and me in our lives, the time and the money, the energy we give him, and he multiplies our efforts over and over again to produce something great for him. It's hard to learn that principle because we live in this dark age. Here's our text. It's Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you, when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you'll mourn and weep. Woe to you when, when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Verse 30. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. So in the kingdom of this world, things feel right side up because the kingdom of this world is loud, it's constant, and it's popular. But Jesus pronounces woes on the kingdom of this world. 
Now that word woe, sometimes we think it means condemnation. But John 3.17 makes it clear. Jesus did not come to condemn anybody, but to save, but to save us, save us from our sins. What's this woe mean? This word woe, if you've ever watched an old-fashioned comedic uh, drama uh, or movie set in the Old West, or you've seen an old silent movie where the heroine usually goes, oh, woe is me. She's not speaking condemnation on herself. She's calling us to pity her situation. So when Jesus delivers the woes, he has four ways in which he pities people of the kingdom of this age, of this world. He says, woe to you who are rich, or I pity you who make power a priority. You see, being rich in our culture is a way to control people. People use power. In our society, it says money talks. Money does talk. And, and money is used abusively. Money is used to control people. It's used for purposes of injustice. It even is used to affect uh, cultural movements. That's what money does. And citizens of the kingdom of this world use money in such a way, completely opposite of why, why God has, has given us money. He says, woe to you who are well fed. In other words, I pity you who make comfort a priority. This term well fed means that you're satisfied. Your physical needs are satisfied. And that's enough for you. Make comfort a priority. Jesus says, I pity you who think in life that is the best way to be comfortable in your, by your own making. He says, I woe to you. I say, he says, woe to those of you who laugh. In other words, I pity those of you who make success a priority. I interpret it that way because this word laugh in the Greek means to gloat. Like some football players yesterday, right? Or when you get a promotion. You know, or when you, when you move to an ups, a more upscale neighbor. You drive the car, your dream car, and you can gloat about it. He said, be careful about that. He says, I pity you who make that a priority. He says, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, meaning I pity those of you who make recognition a priority. What he's talking about here is I pity those of you who have a kind of faith, but it doesn't do anything. It's a faith that is blasé. It doesn't offend anybody. Your values don't affect anybody. Your standards, your choices, your faith makes no striking difference in the world. So does that mean that anybody here who has any kind of power or authority, that if you are comfortable in some way, if you are successful in your life or career, if you, if you have recognition by people that look up to you and admire you, does that mean you're wrong? Not at all. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you must have those things to be happy and fulfilled, I pity you. You are building the wrong way. You're believing the lies of the kingdom. For instance, he says in verse 24, Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. That word comfort is the same root word where we get the word, the name Holy Spirit, who is our chief comforter. When these things, reputation, success, power, money, comfort, when all those things are are overly valuable to us so that we must have them to be happy, then we are not true citizens of the kingdom of God. We may come to church. We may be involved in service. You can take sermon notes. But if the kingdom 
The kingdom message of Jesus Christ is not changing the source of your satisfaction and our sense of security. Then functionally, we are still in the kingdom of this world. Jesus says, I pity you. Now, be careful because you just step your toe into this kingdom of this world. And if you're not careful, you buy into it and it will dominate our thinking It'll, it'll shape our choices. It will swallow us up and take us down. That's how the liar works. He works against us. He works against us to destroy our lives. Be careful of the constant message of the kingdom of this world. Conversely, then, God's kingdom is upside down. It feels that way when you get into it. It's completely contrary to the kingdom of this world. And it's also true in God's kingdom. When you first start out, I mean, you don't really, I mean, how many of us really knew what we were getting into when we were baptized into Christ? I mean, I was 10 years old. I didn't know much. I just knew I loved Jesus. I knew I had sins. I know, knew they needed to be cleansed. And I got baptized. Did I understand the fullness? Not at all. But I got my toe in. Well, actually, my whole body went under. But you know what I mean, you know. I, I, I started in a small way and through, through life, and through study and learning and community, I learned the greater brilliance of living in the kingdom of God, just like you have as well. When Jesus was here, what did he say? He said, a little becomes a lot. Like, if you just have faith of a mustard seed, I can work with that. And there are greater things coming for you. If, if, you, if you will understand that to me in my kingdom, it's like yeast that works through the dough, it permeates the world and affects it positively for me. It's like, it's like being a little bit of light in the darkness that illuminates a room. It's like, like a little bit of salt with which you can be a seasoning agent to the world to keep it from spoiling quite so quickly. He said, that's what kingdom of God life is like. And he says four things about living in this kingdom. First of all, he says in God's kingdom, you have freedom to lose. What do I mean by that? Well, none of us like pain. But if pain comes, if persecution comes, if hardship comes, if bankruptcy comes, if the economy flounders and fails, if there's another depression sometime, no matter what happens, any kind of grief, I don't tank. I don't go under. Because I'm part of a different kind of kingdom. If I lose those things, my life isn't over. You see, in the world's system, if any of those things happen, my, my, I, I'm destroyed. I have to have those things to be fulfilled, to be happy, to be satisfied. If you're, not, if you're in the kingdom of this world, those things happen, you have a meltdown. You think your life is over. But even in our context of the kingdom of God, whatever suffering you go through, and I can look through this audience, I see so many of you have gone through suffering. And what do you, what do you keep doing? You keep worshiping. Why? Because we're not a kingdom of this world. We're a kingdom of God. And we know that God promises that he works all things together for good to those who love God. And it might be a dark day. It might be a day of great loss. We're, 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 by, by the world system, I have been, I have been, I made stupid decisions, or I've sinned greatly, or I've gone under, but I come back to Jesus Christ, who's Lord of all, and he will take my darkest day, and he'll bring something good out of that. 
How many of you could give a testimony to that today? That's what this is about. If you're in the world's kingdom, man, it's lights out. In God's kingdom, you have a name also. In other words, your identity is connected with something greater than whatever you contrive by yourself and on your own. That's what this is about. So Jesus tells the story, remember, about the rich man and Lazarus. So the rich man, he sat at his table, had all this food to eat, and the poor man, Lazarus, just, just wanted some crumbs, and the rich man wouldn't share with him. They Both the guys die. Lazarus goes on to heaven, and the, uh, the rich man goes to hell. And Abraham says to the rich man in the afterlife, you had your comfort. Now, it wasn't because he had money. It's the wealth isn't the issue. The issue is the rich man's life was all about being wealthy. That's who he was. That's what his identity was. He was either rich or nothing. Now, you can fill in the blank. If you put anything there, I'm an athlete or I'm nothing. I'm a musician or I'm nothing. I'm a mother, father, or I can't be anything at all. I'm either married or nothing. I'm not going to be single all my life. I'm going to be a grandparent or nothing. I'm going to have that job or nothing. If that's your, if that's your MO, your identity is wrapped up in a role or some way to function in life and you must have it to be fulfilled. That becomes an idol, and Jesus isn't Lord of life. You see how it works? And what ends up is you don't have a name. So Jesus said in verse 23, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. You see, this, this rich man died, and he was nothing. Here we are 2,000 years later, and what's his name? I don't know. He's nameless. For all posterity. Because they live by the kingdom of this world. And not by the kingdom of God. So the Christian says. We rejoice through everything. Because I might be losing my riches. My, my investments might be going under. I might lose my job. I don't have all the money security. But maybe that's your problem. You look for money as your security. When you lose it all. When you don't have it. You're able to say. Well, I know God promises to take care of me, and he will. He's my identity, not my money, not my house, not what I drive, not the job that I have, not the degree I hold, nothing else, nothing else. He's our identity. That's what we have to get to. That's how God's kingdom people live. Do you have a name, or are you only a businessman, a businesswoman? Are you only a mother, a father, child, athlete, musician, artist? business owner. Who are you? You are a child of God in Jesus Christ. That's your first identity. Also in God's kingdom, you see people. You see people. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus was given the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And by that he meant, blessed are you who understand how spiritually bankrupt you are. Blessed are you when you know you're in bad shape before a holy God and you've sinned and rebelled against him. Blessed are you if you understand that because you're on your way to being a real kingdom person. Here in Luke 6, he doesn't say it that way. He says, blessed are you if you're poor. Well, how do we reconcile both those statements? I think it's this. 
Those who understand they're spiritually poor are able to start seeing the actually poor. Because what Jesus does, he changes our hearts. And no longer do we look at with disdain on the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the, the ones who live wicked lives, the, the ones who are ungrateful, the ones who are self-centered. Why? Because we know by virtue of God's creatorship, every single person has been created in the image of God. And they have intrinsic worth on that basis alone. And friends, that's how this church has to be. We have to start loving the people that are the hardest for us to love. Because our God, the text says, shows mercy on the ungrateful and the wicked. Can you do that? I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm trying to find escape hatches. I haven't found any yet. If I find one, I'll let you know. You see, when Jesus changes your... The, the Old Testament prophet said, I will take away their, their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. In other words, when I come into their lives, everything's going to be different, and I'm going to soften their hearts to all those people who the world holds with disdain. That's the message of Jesus. And in God's kingdom, you invest your money. Verse 30 says, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Well, now, does that mean if I go downtown Indianapolis today uh, and I see all these homeless people that I'm just a, have a cup that I, I should give to everybody or I don't love Jesus? Well, maybe, maybe not. I don't know how the Holy Spirit's going to work in your life. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's preaching, he's teaching it in, a, in the culture, a Greco-Roman culture. In that culture, there weren't institutions, there, weren't, there, there, weren't bank, there wasn't a banking industry uh, by which you could get a loan. If you were in dire straits, you would find somebody who could just help you out, somebody who could do something for you. That's who you loan to. If that person that needed the loan you know, uh, Justin here is over restaurants, okay? He's my good friend over here. So Justin comes to me for money, and I'm thinking, hmm, he's over these restaurants. He could probably get me a free meal. So, sure, Justin, yeah. And I'll wait for the day when I'm uh, hanging around waiting for him to say, hey, you know, you took care of me. I'm going to take care of you today. See, that's how it worked in the Greco-Roman world. Jesus is saying here, our financial giving is radical. Our generosity is outrageous. It's promiscuous. It is risky. Because we understand what we have is not our own. It's all a gift from God. Everything that I have, everything that you own is a mere gift from God. Now our church budget is about four and a half million a year. Our weekly needs around 85,000 or so, and you, you give to that. I trust you do. If you don't, if you're nickel-diming Jesus, if you pay everything else, see what's left over to give, you don't have his economy down yet. He gets the first part, regardless. That's what the Bible teaches. That's not my teaching. That's God's teaching. 
We give to him first. Not only money, our time, our energy, our abilities. We lay down our life. Jesus' call is to lay down our lives. And we give to him. Financially, in service, in surrender. That's the Christian principle for those who follow Jesus and are serious about him. What would happen if the government said, okay, no longer will you get a tax break uh, for charitable giving? Would that affect how much you give? Maybe for some of you, no, because you're not giving anything anyway. But for those of you who have learned to give generously, would it change how much you give for God's kingdom work? See, one of the evidences that we're all in is we hold loosely to what we have and we align our lives in a way that we can give. Your your accountant, your financial advisor, your tax person should look at your charitable giving and say, whoa, are they moved by what you give, the percentage you give to kingdom work? That by itself is a testimony that you're all in in God's kingdom. So I hope you're learning that to trust him. So if if people look at you when you're generous with your time and energy and your money, and they say, you're nuts, good for you. You ought to seem nuts in the kingdom of this world. Now, I want to close with an encouragement and a warning. First, the encouragement. Jesus said, your great is your reward in heaven. You see, the reason that we can handle poverty or being persecuted or the rug being pulled out from our lives or troubles, you know, the reason why. I talked to Donna. Donna, you blessed me today. I said to Donna at the beginning of the service, how's life? She sort of sighed. And I said, you keep getting beat down? She goes, I keep getting beat down. But she said, but I love Jesus. Thank you, Donna. How about the rest of you? Us. I'm preaching to myself, you know. If the rug's pulled out from under me this week, and I'm going to be a worshiper and all in with Jesus. See, that's, that, that's the encouragement I want to give so many of you. Kenny's wife over here. Susan died of cancer. How long ago, Ken? Two and a half months ago. Susan was here worshiping every week as long as she could, as she had breath and energy. Why? Because she loved Jesus. Cancer didn't have the last word. Jesus had the last word in Susan's life. Over and over again, the stories are told in this room. Is he the last word in your life? Great is your reward in heaven. And then it says, in verse 19, the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Tucked away in that statement is the message of the cross. You see, the way we get whole is because he was willing to be broken. The way we get strength for living is because he was willing to become weak. All the woes that he announces in this text, he took on himself to be the most pitied one because he took our punishment that we might live. He was perfectly rich and became poor that we might become rich. He was surrounded by perfect worship in heaven and yet came here to become a man of sorrows so that we might have full joy. He was perfectly loved in the heavenly realms but came here to become an outcast so that we could be brought in to the kingdom, the family of God. 
That's how you know you're in the kingdom. You get that and you understand that. And we spend our lives with a way for him, for him in his name to love all people to new life in Jesus. Now, here's a word of warning. In Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. That kingdom is going down. God is raising up Cyrus, king of the Persians, to be the next world power. And Belshazzar knows it. So what does he do? He has a party. He brings all his concubines. He brings all the wine he can get his hands on. And he's just numbing himself with the impending doom of the nation. And in the middle of the party, you know what happens? A hand appears. It's a miracle of God. And that hand starts writing on the wall. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson, meaning your days are numbered. And I want you to know, good brothers and sisters, that 2,000 years ago, God allowed his son to be crucified, mocked, spit on, because he was crazy about you and me. He loved us with an everlasting love. And Jesus was put in a tomb for three days, but his body did not start decaying. He walked out of that tomb, and he was raised from the dead. And for 2,000 years, in every culture of the world, in our culture now, in the 21st century America, God has written through history, your days are numbered. We are not of the kingdom of this world. We are of an upside-down kingdom, the kingdom of God. And you may feel today that you don't have much strength in that. You don't get all that. You don't understand all that. You struggle with that. But I tell you, you have the faith like a mustard seed. That's all it takes to get started. And I trust you. God, I, 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 I trust him. I, I trust that you will believe his word. It's not the size of your faith that does great things. It's who the object of your faith is. You take a little faith. And you put that in Jesus, and you watch your life go upside down in a way you never thought possible. That's how he works. That's the kingdom of God. The little becomes great when you put your life into his head. If you've not been baptized into Jesus, you need to get started. Why are you playing it safe? You got a better answer? You think somehow you're going to escape this world without yielding to Jesus? You're not. If you're in Jesus and playing it safe... Trying to see just how far you can get in the kingdom without getting too serious about it. I don't know what God's going to do with that, but I wouldn't want to mess around. That's all I know because he's a holy God. And he calls us to die to self and live for him. He is worthy. Let's stand and worship.